Today we're going to continue in our series through the king's eyes and how Jesus saw people and dealt with them. Let's review the past couple of weeks. Uh, Three weeks ago, Pastor Eddie talked about compassion and the kingdom of God, taken from Matthew 14. Two weeks ago, Pastor Justin taught from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, in a message titled, He's Here. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about suffering and the kingdom of God. And the title of today's message is Serving in the Kingdom of God from Matthew chapter 20. So how many of you have ever called a customer service number or stood in a customer service line? All right, so, so most of you. And, and I'm assuming that it will even be so this week as you return that favorite Christmas sweater, right? <laughs> or maybe a tie or socks. Now, it's interesting. I actually ask for socks for Christmas. And, and I don't know if it's my age or if I've, I've reached that age where I'm asking for socks, but it's just not any socks. There's a, there's a brand of socks that Costco makes that I just like. In fact, I got a pair on this morning. So if you want to see them, I'll show them to you after the service. <laughs> so, you know, we've all had this customer service experience. But what makes for a bad experience or what makes for a good experience? You see, a bad customer service experience is, th- this happens when a, a, a business or a person for that matter, they fail to meet our expectations. And trust me, we all have expectations, right? And in fact, you can find out about everybody's expectations on social media. And um, you know, you might be familiar with Yelp, which is a kind of a crowdsourcing uh, platform in which you can pick restaurants based on people's opinions. Or how many of you go out to Amazon and make your purchases based on customer reviews? Sometimes I think they're just inflated to sell junk, but, um, right? Everybody looks at those things. So here are some bad customer service experiences that, that, I've, ex- that I've had over the years. So one of them would be you call an 800 number. Well, after a period of time, you find that you're like 10 layers in and it boots you back to the main menu, and you've never talked to a real person? Oh, I hate that. It's frustrating. Or you stand in line to be told that you need a receipt, or that the receipt you have is like five, past, five days past the, due, you know, the overdue date where you can't return anything. This hasn't happened to me, but this has happened to somebody in my family where they've been blacklisted for returning too many things without a receipt. <laughs> I won't name who that is, Leah. Um, <laughs> Or, or here's one that just, you're, you're talking to a rep and their problems then become your problems and you have to hear about everything that's wrong, right? You just got to sit there and listen going, oh my word. So, you know, we can all resonate with a, with a poor customer service experience and when that happens, right, we all leave angry, we feel frustrated and we vow to never do business with that person or company again, right? It's like, I'm not going to deal with them ever again. 
And see, the interesting thing is I, I'm thinking about customer service experiences. You know, sometimes it's a bad experience because the, the service really is poor, or it's because maybe it's us, right? Our expectations um, aren't what we think they should be, maybe due to selfishness and pride and materialism. But what makes for a good customer service experience? Well, these are the ones that kind of speak for themselves. Maybe the companies are well-known or they're even loved. And this is when somebody meets or exceeds our expectations. And here are some phrases that are really helpful to me. Phrases such as, how can I help you? Or, thanks for bringing this to our attention. Or, I really understand how upset you are. Or, you know, that is a good question. Let me find an answer. You see, these kind of responses go a long way to make us feel valued. So I recently took a tire uh, to a tire store in Lebanon because I couldn't get it to seat properly on the rim. And they fixed that while I waited in about five minutes. They didn't charge me anything, and they were really friendly. So am I going to go back? Absolutely. Or Jackson and I have spent most of December hunting somewhere, and we ended up in a sporting goods store in South Dakota that is employee-owned. And I, I mean, anywhere you turn, somebody is asking you, can I help? And if it's not in their department, they'll deliver you to somebody who can help you. Well, that's customer service. Or how many of you have eaten at this popular fast food restaurant that serves chicken sandwiches? right? And everybody says, my pleasure, right? That really resonates with people. So you may be asking, well, what in the world does customer service have to do with today's message? Well, in today's text, we're going to see how Jesus handles two different so-called customer service interactions, and through this, we're going to learn what serving and the kingdom of God looks like. So if, if you're turned to Matthew chapter 20, I want you to hold your finger there, okay? And I want you to go to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at Mark chapter 10 because Mark chapter 10 is, is the parallel account of today's passage. So let me read that with you. Mark chapter 10 and we're going to start in verse 35, Mark chapter 10 and verse 35, to see the other perspective that Mark writes about. It says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, well, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared." Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. 
but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now I'm down in verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling them to be quiet, and he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, for he is calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, excuse me, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. So here in this passage, and we can see, we'll, we'll look at it again in Matthew chapter 20, is that Jesus puts on his customer service vest, so to speak, and asks the question, what do you want me to do for you or how can I help you? And then we're going to look at the two different responses. So our outline for today will be as follows. So the title is Serving in the Kingdom of God. And point one is, are you seeking a position? And point two, are you seeking peace? Are you seeking a position or are you seeking peace? But I would like to draw your interaction or draw your attention back to, to the book of um, Luke this time. Sorry, I'm having you turn a number of places because it's important here as we kind of set the stage. Luke chapter 18 this time. Luke 18 and verse 31. Luke 18 and verse 31. <clears throat> then he, Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. After they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things that were said. So this conversation that we just read is also found preceding our text today in, in the book of Matthew, and also preceding the text that we just read and Mark. And so the context is, is they were going to Jerusalem and Jesus was telling them about the upcoming events, what was going to happen. But we see from the text that the disciples were unable to comprehend what he was saying. I don't know exactly why, but this is what I think happened, is that They were thinking Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to set up this earthly kingdom. And Pastor Chris mentioned this last week in his sermon 
that in his text that the disciples didn't understand. And Pastor Chris said is maybe there was something he was wanting to teach these men that they really hadn't picked up on yet. So Christ had been telling them basically what was going to happen. They weren't, they weren't picking up what he was putting down. So with that, let's go back to Matthew chapter 20. Let's go back to our text in Matthew. And let's pick it up again in chapter 20. And I'm going to read to you chapter 20 and 21. And this will be point number one. Are you seeking a position? Are you seeking a position? Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. All right, we see in Mark, the book of Mark that we just read in chapter 10, that the sons that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus asking if they could sit on the right or the left. All right. So this is a high-pressure situation, right? It appears that James and John, along with their mother, approached Jesus to ask for a seat in his kingdom. In other words, they were asking or vying for a cabinet seat, right? So we're going to see a lot of that or have been seeing that just recently, right? And They'd been thinking about it, and they hatched a plan on how to approach the topic. But their request was kind of self-seeking and proud and selfish, so much so that they were willing to enlist the help of their mother. Um, Some commentaries say that her name was Salome, the wife of Zebedee, and was one of the women who traveled with and ministered to Jesus. So, So that's the case then it makes sense that James and John would involve their mother. It it reminds me of the famous race car driver, Ricky Bobby, who said, if you ain't first, you're last. For those of you who've ever watched that movie, right? If you ain't first, you're last. And so that created chaos. It created a ruckus. Find your way back to Matthew chapter 20, verse 24, and it says, hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers, right? They're ticked off. They're mad. And, and, and you might be asking, well, well why, are they mad? why are they mad? Well, they were mad probably because James and John got to Jesus first, right? I can hear them now. Those mama's boys. They, they wanted to be first and not last. In fact, this vying for a place of position seems to be a common topic among the disciples. We see this even occurring at the Last Supper in Luke twenty two twenty four 24 that says, and there arose also a dispute among them as to which one was regarded as the greatest. So, you know, it's human nature to want to win, to be first, to be the center of attention. In, in fact, we hear greatness statements all the time. And there was a, uh, a famous linebacker who said, I already believe I am the best linebacker in the game and the best football player to ever put on a pair of cleats. You know, this makes me think of Proverbs 16.8 that says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Also in Proverbs 18.12, it says, before destruction a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. In Philippians 2.3, we're reminded to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Boy, I bet we can all find ourselves in 
a similar situation, can't we, at times? So our hearts and our minds can really be at odds with our theology. And I, I listen, there's a, a pastor, Douglas O'Donnell, who, whose sermons became really commentaries, but as I was reading him, he really resonated with me this, uh, the last couple of weeks as I've been working through this text. And he asked the question, he asked, can true faith and real error be mixed in the heart of the best Christians? Can a high view of Jesus coexist with a higher view of self? Yes. Can great faith and great ignorance be wed in the same brain? Yes, again. As I was thinking about that question, I was reminded of James chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. It says, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men. The same mouth bring blessing and cursing, or fresh water and bitter water. But I really do want to make a few comments about the disciples, right? Because we read this, and we're like, oh, those guys, right? Cast judgment upon them and find fault. But Charles Spurgeon asked a question. He said, Shouldn't we, should we question ourselves as to whether we think as much of the, of, of the Lord as they, the disciples, did? In other words, the disciples believed with all their heart that Jesus would reign in a physical kingdom. But they just want a good spot in it. So do we believe that Jesus will reign in a literal kingdom and that he will do as he said he was going to do? So if you think back, right, the disciples had just spent a long period of Jesus' ministry with him, and they probably heard him teach Matthew 6, 3 that says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And they'd heard many parables on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So does it, doesn't it make sense that as Jesus was talking about dying, they were really concerned about his physical kingdom, and that's what was running through their mind. I, I was reading uh, this morning, and I, in, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, verse 27, Peter said to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you, have, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of of man will sit in his glorious throne, you will sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So doesn't it make sense, stand to reckon, that the reason they were asking for a position is because that's what Christ said, right? So that's where we find ourselves with the disciples. But despite their error, what was Jesus' response? Well, first of all, he was patient. None of us ever lose our patience. He continued to teach, and he told them that if they wanted a position in the kingdom, they were going to have to suffer, and they were going to have to serve. So I actually have some sub-points to point number one. So, all right, point 1A is suffering in the kingdom of God. And so Pastor Chris, actually, that was the title of his message last week, is Suffering in the Kingdom of God. So I don't want to diminish what he said, but I do want to say a few brief points. So let's look back to Matthew chapter 20. Let's look back to our text. 
And let's look in chapter, excuse me, in verse 22. But Jesus answered, do you, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, well, we're able. He said to them, well, my cup, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So here we see Jesus ask the question, are you willing to suffer? It's kind of like, should you choose to accept this mission? And we as a family just watched four of the six Mission Impossible movies, and whenever somebody chose to accept, there was pain and suffering, right? The disciples said, oh yeah, we're able. And in reality, I don't know if they completely understood or fully grasped what he meant. But in the upcoming week and years to come, they sure would. So Jesus asked the question, um, and then we pick up what he said at the end of verse 23. And I'm just going to, this is Jared's paraphrase, okay? It may be something like this. By the way, you're asking me about a position that is not in the scope of my current role. So let's just agree that the Father has already worked it out and we don't need to worry about it now. Kind of like just diffuse the whole situation. So final point on suffering. Jesus uses suffering to rescue us from ourselves so we can see him more clearly. In fact, Diana, my mother-in-law, and I were just talking about that suffering and that very topic yesterday or maybe this morning. See, the disciples would later face suffering and death. And then they would remember what Jesus said. Pastor Chris reminded us last week that during times of suffering, Jesus sees, Jesus arrives, and Jesus rescues. And may that be true for us when we face trials of many kinds. So if you want a position in the kingdom of God, you've got to be willing to suffer. Point 1B, serving in the kingdom of God. Point 1B, serving in the kingdom of God. Now, I've done something a little unconventional here. You'll notice that this point, serving in the kingdom of God, is the title for today's message. I think it fits here. You could disagree with me. I think it fits here, and this is why. Because... We always find Jesus serving people in the middle of life, in the midst of life. He is constantly bombarded with people, questions, and disputes. It is during these times that we watch his customer, customer service ability at its best. He's always focusing and pointing people to the Father and calling them to serve one another. In Matthew 22, if we were to turn over there, he's having a conversation with the religious leaders saying, guys, listen, you need to love God and you need to love people. So I put this in the middle of the sermon to help us remember that in the midst of life, we're called to serve others. So let's read Matthew chapter 20. Find your way, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. 
but it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, well, there's two ways to serve people. The first way is you can deal with people in a domineering way, like the rest of the world, and view greatness through power, influence, prestige, and control. And he uses the Gentiles as an example. But if you, if you go back to verse 26, look at what he said. But it is not this way among you, meaning that domineering leaders who lord it over others is not how we're to treat people. And then he followed it up with this. I didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give my life in service. So in verse 26 and 27, then we're going to see what greatness looks like in his kingdom. So let's go here to verse 26 again. It says, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. So the Greek word for servant is where we get our English word deacon. And it means one who executes the commands of another or a servant of the king. So Christ was saying, listen, I came to serve, right? I am serving the Father. So I want you, right, if you want to be great, you need to serve the king, serve me. Verse 27, and whoever wishes to be first among you will be your slave. The Greek word slave refers to the lowest form of servitude. It's the lowest of the lowest servant. It's the one who gives himself up for the will of another. In the New Testament, it refers to those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. So if I could summarize Christ's teaching, it may go something like this. If you are seeking a place of position in my kingdom, then you've come to the wrong place. For my kingdom uses a metric that rewards selflessness, anonymity, and a humble spirit. In other words, if you want to go up, then you need to go down. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 4.2 that says, In this case, moreover, it is required of a servant that they be found faithful. So Christ is saying, if you want to serve, if you want to be great, then you need to serve. If you want to be first, then you need to be last. There's a group of theologians that I refer to from time to time who wrote, To touch is to heal, to hurt is to steal. If you want to kiss the sky, better learn how to kneel on your knees, boy. That's given to us by you too. Uh, Pastor O'Donnell summarizes the lyrics this way, and I like how he did that. He said, if you want to kiss the sky, if you want to be exalted in God's heavenly kingdom, you'd better learn humility and how to kneel on your knees. So, so here's the question. Do we approach Jesus as a customer service rep for what he can do for us? 
Remember the old commercial that said, what can Brown do for you? Maybe you're asking, what can Jesus do for me? Maybe you have good intentions like the disciples and are as Peter said, Lord, I'm willing to die for you. But maybe we have the wrong motives. James 4 verses 2 and 3 reminds us that you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. Here's a quote from a famous pastor by the name of Chris Barksdale. He said, It is that he is God Almighty, the one who creates and rules over the entire universe. He can make fish and bread appear out of nowhere, and the winds and the seas obey his every command. The disciples, like most people around Jesus then and even today, had what Johnny Cash calls their own personal Jesus. He was an entity present for the immediate needs, someone to call on to take the wheel when necessary, someone to use for personal or political gain. But Jesus doesn't fit into your back pocket or your purse. He is God Almighty, controlling your very breath. So are we seeking a position? If so, it's going to cost us something, right? We've got to be willing to suffer. We've got to be willing to serve. Okay, point number two. <clears throat> are you seeking peace? So let's look back at our passage. This time down to verse 29. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 29. I'm going to read uh, through verse 34. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told him to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Okay, so here we see Jesus ask the question, what can I do for you or how can I help you? A second time, but with a much different response. See, this is life as it is. This is real life, this story. You see Jesus, you see crowds, you see blind beggars sitting by the road. You see real life responses. Let me read reminds you again of Mark chapter 10, verse 46. We read that. But it says, as they came to Jericho, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. So in Mark's account, we learn the name of the blind man. You might be saying, okay, why? Well, I think his name is given so that we remember that he's a real person with the same human desires as all of us. You see, Bartimaeus and his friend were sitting by the road, marginalized on the outside of polite society, but yet they desired to be seen and heard just like everybody else in the crowd. As we've seen, right, there was a large crowd following Jesus, and it appears that as his ministry went on, the crowd got bigger. We know from the Gospels that there were crowds as large as 5,000 people. 
We know that the Pharisees and religious leaders were following him for some sort of gain or maybe to catch him in a trap. We know there are men, women, and children. There's probably no doubt some of the followers were those that he healed. Others were maybe based on the miracles they had witnessed. Others were probably along for the show, and we know one of the disciples was following for financial gain. And that may be just scratching the surface is why people were following him. Reminds me of that saying, one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. But as we watch this crowd, we can notice their mentality. You see, they've been following Jesus, listening to his messages, been an eyewitness, literally an eyewitness to his miracles. And yet, they were calling out these two blind beggars and chastising them, the guys sitting on the edge of the road who were crying out in true faith. Pastor O'Donnell says this about the crowd. He says, the rebuke is a small but symbolically significant action. It's symbolic of the crowd's faith, of faith that makes Jesus a mighty king, but not Jesus as a merciful king, a king who came not to be served, but to serve a king who came to live and die and live again for the least, the outcasts of society, even these blind beggars. You see, Bartimaeus and his friend, they weren't part of the crowd. They'd not been following Jesus. They'd literally not been an eyewitness to his miracles or his ministry. Yet, hearing that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord Have mercy on us, son of David. While their eyes were blind, their hearts could see. It says in Ephesians 1.8, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You see, these blind men were seeking peace with Jesus as they cried out in saving faith. They acknowledged, we read about it, they acknowledged Jesus as the king from the lineage of David, the rightful king, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. So picture this, large crowd of people, Jesus is in the middle of the crowd, noisy, chaotic, people vying for his attention, Lots of distractions, but he hears them crying out. So what does he do? He stops, and he speaks to them. He calls them over, and he asks them the best service, customer service question ever, right? What can I do to help you? And what was their response? We just want to see. We want our eyes to be opened. Ironically, right, two blind men could see Jesus even though they were blind. Well, the crowd could see Jesus but not recognize him as the son of David. It's kind of like us, right? How many times do we get excited when there's a possibility of seeing someone famous, right? I remember going to Pacer games when Michael Jordan was playing just so you could watch Michael Jordan, right? Because everybody wanted to catch a glimpse of someone famous, But I don't think Bartimaeus and his friend, I think they wanted to see more. 
I think they wanted their eyesight so they could literally look upon their Savior and see him for who he was. What does a king look like? They just wanted to see him with their own eyes. So what did Jesus do next? Go back down to verse 34. Moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion. And if you remember to this, back to this summer, I had a message titled, Be United with One Another, where I introduced you to the word, you splank nose. I love this word. You splank nose means strong vowels. And in biblical terms, it means uh, tenderhearted. It means well or good affections. In fact, I think even Pastor Justin has used this word before. So the word compassion, used in verse 34, comes from this same word, and means to be moved to one's bowels, hence to be moved with compassion. It's kind of like, you know when you have this gut feel, you have this strong feel in the very core? That's what this is talking about, compassion. Jesus was moved to the core. Back to verse 34. What did he do? He was moved with compassion, and Jesus touched their eyes. The word touched is fascinating because it means, so you got to listen closely to see the progression. It means to fasten to, make adhere to, specifically to kindle, to fasten fire to a thing, or to set on fire. Oof. Makes me think of that song, set fire to the rain. But that's an impossibility, Right? But in most cases, when we see this word touched used in the Gospels, it has to do with Jesus healing. He sets fire to what he touches, literally sets fire to it. Matthew 9.20 says, And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up and touched his garment. Matthew 9.29 says, And he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. In Mark 1.41, it says, And he moved with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I'm willing to be cleansed. So verse 34, let's go back there. It says what? It says, And immediately they regained their sight. So we see that their physical eyesight matched their heart eyesight. And they followed Jesus. They became Christ followers who could see with their eyes and their hearts. If we we were to look back at Mark chapter 10, verse 52, it says, they began to follow him on the road. So what an amazing picture. Jesus just took two men who were blind beggars, marginalized, sitting along the road, looking from the outside in, to becoming true followers who would join him with the crowd on his journey. Wow, can you imagine the testimony these two guys had in the crowd as they walked with each other? You see, when Jesus touches us, it literally sets us on fire, causing a consuming action. In the case of Bartimaeus and his friend, this action was to follow Jesus, not for a place of position, but for peace to their troubled hearts and souls. You see, truth faith ignites a life change, 
and we become true followers of Jesus, the son of David, and in the process, we learn how to serve. So maybe you're here today, and you can identify with the crowd, or maybe you're listening online, and you can identify with the crowd. You're just along for the ride, just wanting to see what happens. Maybe you're even a little skeptical. Maybe you're an agnostic or even a critic looking to find some fault or drama to prove a point. Or maybe you find yourself a believer like the disciples who were more concerned about a place of position and how people see you. Or are we like Bartimaeus and his friend whose hearts had been set on fire and then they started following Jesus and learning how to serve one another. You see, we just spent the past few days celebrating Christmas, the birth of Jesus, and remembering Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But as we end, I'd also like you to consider his death. Because remember, Christ had pulled the disciples aside and was explaining to them that he was going to die, he was going to be buried, and he was going to be raised again on the third day. But that escaped their understanding. So let's have eyes to see and hearts to hear Please listen as I read Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. It says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. For he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So we're going to observe communion. You'll notice that there's, there's juice and bread there and cups in the front of you in your pew. We're going to have a few moments of silence followed by some music. And during this time, I'd just like you to reflect on Jesus and what he's come to do, what he's done for you, and how the Spirit is working in your heart. So let me pray. Lord, you, you had a lot to say in your word about loving you and serving you and loving other people. And Lord, it's really hard for us because it seems like we do find that out of one part of our brain, we say we love you, and out of the other side, we can be kind of selfish. Lord, I find that to be true of me. It seems like a lot in my life. Lord, help us to remember that uh, you came to serve and to die and to give your life a ransom for many, and that should bring us hope. I pray that as we just spend these next couple of minutes, that your spirit would just be speaking to our hearts of Maybe there are some here today who are not true followers of you who just need to put their faith in you for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's that simple. 
Maybe there are those of us who are here, and maybe we kind of come with wrong motives at times, and we're more concerned about how people see us or whether they'll recognize if we're here or we're not here. Or, Lord, maybe you're starting to ignite a fire in our hearts, and I, I pray that you would do that for all of us, that you'd light a fire that would cause really a consuming action, that we would go forth and be salt and light in the world. Help us to show love to our neighbors. Help us to love each other here in the church. Help us to love each other in our families. And I pray that as we contemplate 2021, we just pray that you would uh, give us a fresh vision for people and serving people and loving you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to meet here this morning. Thank you for technology that can take your word uh, outside the church building. I just pray that as, uh, as we leave, we would encourage one another, that we would leave with a bounce in our step and a smile on our face because we've had the opportunity to be together. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.